From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Steve Thompson from Notley River Valley Vineyard in Murphy, North Carolina. Steve planted his vineyard in 2008 with the help of his wife, Karen. He tells us what it's like growing grapes in southwestern North Carolina and just how different it is from the other parts of the state. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made part impossible by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So today we're here with Steve Thompson at Notley River Valley Vineyards in Murphy, North Carolina. Steve, welcome to Cork Talk. Well, glad to, glad to be here. Thanks for uh, spending time with me. We're always happy to make it out this way. Yeah, so it's a long ways out. <laughs> it is. It's about as far far out as you can get in North Carolina, at least on this side of the state. So tell folks, again, who you are and tell us about how Notley River Valley got started. Well, I'm Steve Thompson, and the uh, wife Karen and I started the vineyard in 2008. I uh, was interested in wine for some crazy reason since I was a young kid, and uh then uh, later, when I went in the Air Force, started flying around the world, and then later with Delta. So spent about 38 and a half years flying around the world, visiting vineyards and wineries, and because it always, you know, perked my interest as to how do you make these products, how do you grow the grapes, and what makes all the differences uh, in in the area and and in the wines, and uh, we. Property here has been in my family since 1820, and we needed something to do with the remaining 93 acres that was unique and different, kind of a you know small format farming. We we don't have enough property here in the mountains to do standard agriculture farming nowadays with the expense. And if we needed something of a niche to do, and then North Carolina, when it became friendly with the wine industry in 97, started uh, working with wineries. Uh, sparked my interest a little bit and started looking at it a little bit more. And uh, and we started doing a lot of intense research. And in 2006, 2007, we said, you know, we're probably crazy enough we can try this. And uh, and we took control of the farm after my mom's death in 2008. And we started up op- started. Uh, preparing the vineyard site in Memorial Day of 2008. And uh, first vines Karen planted in 15 October of 2008. And so here we are all these years later, and what have we learned? Don't know nothing about growing uh, uh, wine grapes. Uh, nobody's ever done in this area. We still don't know what will grow. We still don't know the best practices, but uh, we... It's a labor of love and uh, and love and hate, I guess. <laughs> uh, some days as to as to what we do. So we're here and uh, we we try to let the vineyard speak for itself. Um, every every bit of the wine we produce is we try to let the vineyard speak uh, 
I've talked with individuals. I know you'll see a lot of individuals and talk with them. They say, I'm a winemaker. I made this wine. I did this. I don't have that power. I don't have that magic, you know. You make the wine in the vineyard, and all we can do is try to, I, I consider myself a wine shepherd. We try to bring you from the vineyard to the glass, minimum intervention, uh, so it's as natural a product as we can possibly produce in the environment we have to produce it. So that's, that's our goal is to try to produce a, a very good wine that is true to the, the site, the vineyard, the year it was, the grapes were grown and harvested. And that's, that's what we work at. So what did you plant that first first year? Oh, I understand. Well, I know the vineyard's changed since. So let's talk well, about yeah, kind of well, evolution. Well, you know, uh, the first year we'd, we'd spent eight, nine years doing research. We gave up in 2006 and threw the books out the door and said, the heck with it, nobody knows because nobody's ever done it here. Yeah, and, I think we're still figuring it out. And, well, we are, and it doesn't matter what they do. And, and you know, we can have a Ph.D. in Oregon like we did come out, and, oh, you need to do this, that. No, they don't know. They've never done it here. So uh, unless you're on site and grown here and worked for two centuries here, you still don't know what will work here. But originally, based on uh, temperature, climate research, rainfall research, and then again, I grew up here on the farm. So um, we had a better feeling for some of it than, than folks who would be new to the area. So we planted uh, the first in October of 15, 2008, was uh, Saval and Chardonnay. And uh, we put those two hybrids in. Then we ordered from uh, California, we ordered the uh, Zinfandel. I love a good red uh, no, Zinfandel. And then we put uh, Pinot Noir in, uh, Merlot, uh, Riesling, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Franc, uh, and Chardonnay. And so we had all of those in. Three years into, four years into it, we had to pull the Zinfandel. It just will not tolerate the weather. When those were planted in 2009, 2010, we put some uh, uh, Pinot Gris from Oregon in uh, because I like a good Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio. And I thought I'd use what they used in Oregon better than uh, some of the other uh, clones. Uh, so we pulled the Zinfandel first because of the winter. We put uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in this place. Uh, two years later, we ended up pulling it out because it just too cool in that one section of the vineyard. And we have a problem with Cabernet Sauvignon in the area anyway. Uh, we finally pulled our last out in 16. So our 16 vintage was the last cab solve we had. The vines grow well, but they're too big. They get too waterlogged, and then with a, a cool uh, or a freeze like we had this mm. March, uh, you know, the, the trunks crack. They're yeah. so big and gnarly, they, they crack and the vine dies. So uh, just they just won't tolerate the weather. Uh, then in the Merlot planting, we decided when we pulled it out, the same thing, we'd lose, the, they would crack. Uh, so we put, uh, we decided we'd go with Chamberson. So we put some Chamberson in there. It was growing well. We put half of that block in Cabernet Franc. Then in uh, 15, I made a terrible mistake, I guess, looking back on it. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes, but um, we pulled the uh, the Pinot Noir. 
we'd only had uh, one harvest of Pinot. It was, it was very nice Pinot, but uh, we could never get it to ripen above about 19 bricks. And uh, I don't harvest at that sugar level. Uh, it's got to be more balanced, and we'll just let it rot, and we've let a lot of grapes rot, uh, rot because we could never get the rotness we wanted. Yeah. Uh, I got a call yesterday from a gentleman who is getting ready to harvest at 15 bricks. Oh, my. Asked if he was going to make jelly or jam out of it. And no, we sold the grapes to a vineyard and they're going to make wine. I, Are they going to make sparkling wine with that? Uh, you can't even make sparkling wine <laughs> yeah, with still it. Yeah, it's still not. But the Pinot, uh, I retired from uh, from the airline in, in the 16. So if I had just left those another year, I would have had time and we could have harvested them for sparkling. Mm. Uh, you know, Pinot is the number one sparkling grape in France. Uh, up to 19% sugar, they were absolutely gorgeous. Tolerated the cold, uh, they just couldn't make a still wine out of it. But now I have the capability, the time, and everything. I'd, I'd love to have those vines back. And yeah, I, for sure. Because, man, at 19%, I could make a beautiful yes, sparkling oh, at, gosh, at, yeah. at that level. Uh, but we put the Chamberson in there, and then... Uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon we pulled out, and we put uh, more Cab Franc in. Cab Franc does beautifully. Uh, then we pulled the Pinot Gris for the same reason. We only got a two harvests of Pinot Gris, and it, it just wasn't doing well in its particular site. And we planted it with Zinfandel. Uh, not, excuse me, not Zinfandel. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you tried Shira, it again? Uh, Shiraz. <laughs> excuse me. Uh, so we put nice. the Shiraz in. And the Shiraz was doing pretty good, uh, and uh, uh, this year would have been, you know, our first big full heavy harvest. Good mature grapes and everything. And then the middle of March, we had two weeks of uh, 65, 70 degree weather, sap all up yeah. in the vines. And then in two days, it was 21 one morning, 18 one morning, 22 mm. one morning. Pipes burst. And it split the split oh. the trunks and everything, oh. so... Guess what? The Shiraz dead, so Shiraz out of here. Dummy me is going to. Uh, we had a friend had some Cap Franc vines left over, so we put those in. What he had, and I'm going to try a, a grape I've never tried before, but I'm going to to uh, try a different grape this year in the rest of that. And uh, you guys know it and talk with people who grow it, so maybe you can tell me. Petit Verdot. Oh, yeah. And I know some folks down here in Georgia are growing it in the foothills. Yes. And out in the Piedmont. I have no idea what it'll do here. There's no other idiot out here trying to plant it in the mountains. So. Well, I mean, if you, you try Pinot Noir, I mean, I thought we'd think Pinot, Petit Verdot would be easier. but Well, uh, we'll see. But like, like I said, again, I, I say the, uh, I may, I may, if I were younger, I would go here on the top of the hill and I'd put a couple acres of uh, a Pinot in, uh, a different clone, clone six, I think I'd put in on that slope. And I'd do sparkling arp if I could get it, you know, with good airflow and drainage. And if I could get it ripen on a dry year like 16 was, then mm. I'd do a, a good still wine. But, uh, we remember that still wine though yeah, from, from sixteen. It, it was, was good, it's yeah. that was because yeah. the sixteen was phenomenal. It just stands out because you don't find Pinot in North Carolina, so really, so 
Um, that one definitely is one that sticks out in my mind. Our, our 16 vintage was phenomenal. And so now then, uh, we're, our Chamberson, I don't like the vine. I'm, I'm trying to beat it in submission to do a, a vertical shoot because I, I hate a high wire, mm-hmm. especially as much growth as we have here, trying to keep the vine managed. I can't, I can't understand how you can do it hanging down to the ground. We were the other day out there removing some 30-foot shoots. Oh, wow. You know, and we'd already already pruned and hedged and, and thinned it, but walking through, you say, oh, here's a long shoot, and here's another yeah. 20, 30-foot shoot growing, you know, a bull cane, and you cut it out. <laughs> but uh, so we, we beat it in sub- submission every year. and uh, But with it, we do pretty good because we do the uh, our our sweeter wines, you know, our our flavored wines with it, and we do our dry rosé with it. It makes a beautiful dry rosé, and then our port, we've, we've made some beautiful port with it, and our port is 100% uh, Chamberson. We distill the Chamberson wine oh. or the Aquadenti, and then we fortify, stop the fermentation oh, nice. on the Chamberson. So it's, it's 100% Chamberson, no sulfite, absolutely nothing done to it other than just putting the putting the aqua denti in it to stop the fermentation and then racking it a few times and barreling it a while and then bottling it. You know, all of our dries and, and, and the fortified are, we try not to filter them. And uh, we don't like to, to filter our dry wine. Our, Is that because you're worried about filtering out flavor? I'm, I'm worried about changing it. I want, to, you know, I'd rather you have some sediment and we have some customers that will back off from having sediment in wine, but so I be it. hurt you. So be it. I mean, it's a natural yeah. product. It's, yeah. it's, it's skin pigment and cream of tartar, as people know it. But, right. Uh, so it's not going to affect anything. And it's you know, the champagne you're drinking right now or sparkling you're drinking right now, you know, still has a yeast in it for four yeah. and a half years and some cream of tartar. Which is tartar. lovely, by the way. And it just <laughs> uh, it, it just adds to the complexity of the, and, and structure of the wine. And, yeah. Uh, we're radical. You're talking about doing, you know, World War II time frame and all. And I think the French and the Italians and everything, the, the Germans, the old world winemakers before all the modern conveniences and everything had a truer uh, wine. Uh, a lot of our modern consumers probably wouldn't appreciate it or like it. But I, I still think that there's something to be said for trying to be as natural as you can possibly be. Absolutely. And when I say that, I'm not talking about organic because ain't no way right. in the world There's we no can, way you can do, do that. organic here because of the humidity and the fungus and disease pressures. But but still, is, is not manipulating, not using reverse osmosis and all kind of finding agents and chemicals and things. <coughs> we try to co-stabilize down to 34 degrees because hmm. that's where you, your refrigerator is. And if you keep the wine, our wines in the refrigerator two or three months, you're going to have the wine diamonds or crystals from the metallic acid in them. And uh, big wineries, you know, they've chilled it on down to 25 to try to make Drop it more stable for you. Yeah. And nowadays you can buy a chemical that's approved by the uh, TTB to put in so you don't even have to cold stabilize it, but you won't get any crystals. Hmm. Guess what? You can have it. I'll, I'll take the crystals any day. I'd rather it be a more natural. Yeah. And if you like it, fine. If don't, go go buy somebody else's or pour it down the drain, cook with it, whatever. You know? But uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, 
So let's let's back up a minute if we can. So you were talking about how no one's really done a study here in, in this western part of the state about what grows and what you should grow here. You've planted a lot of varietals. You've had some really good success with some of them. What would you say grape growing is like out here in this far western North Carolina? It is probably as challenging and time-consuming as you could imagine. When uh, when I did the research and all back, uh, Cornell and Virginia Tech had it in 2006-2007. They had an economic analysis module that you could download online and plug in your numbers and everything to look at at the the feasibility of the vineyard operation and all. And they had they had all these parameters set out, and they said, well, a husband and wife, and they're going back to the tobacco farmers. Okay. You know, because that's what, how Virginia and North Carolina all come about in the wine industry, the loss of the revenue from the tobacco uh, taxes. Uh, they said a husband and wife can manage seven acres of, vin- of vines except for pruning and harvest. Hmm. And it will take, and they had so much. So we should spend three days a week, two people in the vineyard, and that should be what you can manage seven acres. The vineyard, we've got right at six acres of vines, almost seven acres in the vineyard proper. Uh, you can't do it. <laughs> <coughs> Impossible here. We have too much rainfall. Uh, the soil is, is too rich. And... Uh, you get too much growth on the vines. And then you have the big W, weather. Mm. And this year, for example, we had the, had a real hard freeze that in March that killed, we lost about 1,100 vines total of where the trunks just split. And they were covering from that, and we thought, well, we're going to do pretty good. And then the end of April, we had April the 26th, we had about six or eight inches of growth on the shoes. It got down to 28. Mm-hmm. Now, on the top of the mountain, I got a friend over here who has a vineyard 300, 400 foot higher than I am elevation facing south. It's three degrees warmer than me, so he didn't have any problem here. Huh. But here, where we are, we get a lot of, we're in an inland valley, you know, but we got mountains 3,500, 4,000 feet all around us, and we're sitting at 1,720 foot. Mm. And uh, we got the river bottom, but we end up with humidity, 100% humidity every single day, which causes problems with, uh, with fungus, mildew, and then uh, rot when you start getting close to the harvest because it's all that constant humidity. Uh, so you're, you're continually fighting that, and then you're fighting rain. We're well-drained. We got more of that. used to be the river bottom, so there's... It's just loaded with river rock. There's not a lot of clay, so the the, the soil drains pretty fast. Oh, that's good. And we got rock and go walk through it, and it looks like you're in, in a rock forest. You know, you couldn't hmm. couldn't cut hay off from it, couldn't grow soybeans or corn or anything because there's rocks. This wall here's two thirds of the rocks in this wall came oh, out wow. of the vineyard. And uh, but that is that is the challenge is weather, and then finding the Finding the grape that will do it, and you can, you can talk to all the viticultural experts, the nurseries, and everything. Say, which clone of, say, Pinot Noir, for example, is the most open cluster, mm-hmm. the biggest, most open cluster that you can find 
Nobody will tell you. You can't find it. I had dinner with a, a guy from Oslace, uh, Hoover, the son of Hoover now, down in the vineyard and wine room. And they have a Pinot that's a real open cluster, and he sent me information on those. So hmm. If I ever put any Pinot in, it'll be if I can get that clone from their vineyard. That's what I would put in because they're, they're open. Yeah, that's what you need for sure. <coughs> the humidity is and our Riesling airflow is, and stuff. Yeah, our Riesling is clone 10, and we have problems with it because it is more like a Pinot. It's a tighter oh. cluster. But when we did the research back in 2006, 2007, you could not find that information. Hmm. <laughs> so it would be nice if Mark and some of the folks at the university or somewhere would get off the stick and figure out and get information on what clones of all the different varieties or the more open clusters and things. If we could, you can't find that. Yeah. Just you just the data point they don't have, so it's no. interesting. And you would think that we would know that, yeah. But you cannot find it here in the states, hmm. and uh, I, I wish we could. But that is the biggest challenge. Uh, and then trying to figure out, we've gone from uh, 985 vines per acre, almost 2,000 vines per acre. We've gone from vertical shoot position, you know, uh, with cordon and spur. Uh, we've been trying cane for the last two and a half to three years. Uh, if I put the Petit Verdot in, I'm going to go to a, a two-foot spacing in the row with it. And we're not even going to do cane printing. We're just going to do kind of like a head okay. and run the, run four or five shoots up every year and just take those shoots and not lay them down or anything. Just let them grow vertical. Hmm. Just splay them out a little bit and yeah. see. Because... I have no idea what will go and what will work here, and so we've been doing. We're 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 research facility sure. as much as anything. Everything that we do out here, nobody's done in this area. Nobody knows, and what works in uh, in Winston Salem or in the Yakin Valley or Hall River does not work here. What will work on the other side of the hill down on the river bottom won't work here on this hillside. Mm -hmm. So uh, very, very specific. And when you work with it, you can understand why I've got a bottle of, of uh, a Shiraz from the Hermitage. And it's La Chapelle, but it's the, the petite La Chapelle, you know, three or four foot away from the <laughs> big La Chapelle. So it's a $150 bottle versus $600 or $900 bottle. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and just two or three foot, and you say, ah, that's full. No, no. Yeah. It is actual fact. Because every, these, these vines are sensitive to everything. Yeah. And uh, everything affects it. People talk about microclimates, but it's almost like a micro vineyard. Yeah, every vine is its own little micro. Every every vine is its stinking microcosm, you know, so to speak. So, so we're we'll do the research and the heavy lifting, and so hopefully something that we do will work, and we can share that information with somebody else, and they don't have to put their hand on the hot eye to see that it's hot. You know, they believe in you say it's hot. They'll burn you if you touch it. So hopefully that we will improve and, and raise everybody's boat as we try to raise ours yeah. here as to what and how and what will work. So <laughs> But I, I still go back to the old French, Italian, and, I, and, and I'm going to lean heavily on French because I think they've 
pretty sharp on what they do. And they've, they've got some of the better prices of wine mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, and if you see them with a stake with a vine on it and only four or five shoots growing up the post and pick the clusters off from it, they're doing that for a reason. And we've tried to mechanize, try to get it for labor because that's the other flip side of the coin here is labor. Sure. We don't have the luxury of having a lot of vineyards around where we've got a vineyard management group that will come in and prune or will spray or, or thin or whatever. It's us. And you go on the back, I've got, there's about six, seven people on the back who have helped harvest and, and prune or whatever, bottle, whatever. They're friends of the vineyard, volunteers, whatever, and they cook. And if it wasn't for them, we'd just, we'd have to shut down tomorrow and go. Mm. Especially in today's market, you sure. cannot get like, yeah. it's just. Yeah, it's definitely a, a big problem, especially for small, <laughs> small businesses like the small farms. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, totally understand that. Yeah, but you know, so we we got a pretty good spray program that we work with, and we we try to go toward the organics as much as we humanly possible here in the site. And then when we get close to harvest, everything is organic zero interval harvest or anything we use on them. You know, starting about thirty days out mm. instead of the fourteen or seven, which you can can do with depends on what you're using. But we back off on that, and then. Then we got a mechanical hedger. We try to, you know, help loosen the load, and and we've got a deleafer that we run to keep the leaf population down. But this year, the freeze in April, we we couldn't yeah. even use it because it was so. We had so many laterals, and mm. the clusters were hanging out, and everything. It would have done All more damage. It, it, no, not, yeah. so we couldn't even done that this year. So it's those are the those are the big challenges. <coughs> weather, 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 and labor, and uh, no history, no experience. Yeah. Well, you're building that now, so hopefully we're documenting it well. <laughs> we're certainly <laughs> trying. <laughs> we're actually at a really good spot to take a quick little break for our wine education segment, but when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the wines you make and then a little bit more about some of the things you've learned over the years. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse, Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. I think we left off at 1931 last time. So I'm assuming we're going to go from there and yes, hit some more are. in the 1900s. Yeah, probably not too far in the 1900s no. still. There's That's so fine. Much. So much. So we just finished. World War One's over. Great Depression, Prohibition, all that's going on. It's not good times right now. But we're going to go back to France because we're just going to live in France a little lot in the early 1900s. So we learn about, or if we know French wine now, we know about the crazy controls and regulations that French wine has, but why? So let's be honest, most regulations and controls starts because people cheat or are shady, right? And then you have to make laws to prevent that. Cheating had been around a long time in wine. English writers knew about recipes for producing fake Bordeaux, Burgundy, Port, and this was all bearable. It was just part of life until phylloxera came around and wiped out many of France's vineyards. So when that happened, real wine was at such a premium that millions of tons of a year of raisins were being imported into southern France to boil up into wow. to form a wine out of. Oh. Those are not words you want to go together. No. Boiling yeah. raisins. raisins <laughs> wine. Um, so the port of Set 
became the main point for imports from Spain, Italy, Algeria, which would exit the port northward, labeled as anything from first growth, Bordeaux to Burgundy, Hermitage, like all these were leaving, labeled as such. Riots started taking place in southern France, all the way to Champagne, against these counterfeiters. Um, and finally, I guess there was enough rioting that the politicians took action. Hmm. So local laws and the national decrees started appearing. Sometimes they would just simply state for the first time ever that the wine must be made, quote, exclusively from, from the alcoholic fermentation of fresh grapes or fresh grape juice. Wow. So crazy concept, right? Hmm. But this is the first time that they had to actually say that. So the next move was to delimit areas of vineyards that could be used in a title like Chablis or Bordeaux. Um, politics entered in here, of course, because who decides where the boundaries are drawn? So let's just think of zoning nightmares now. Same thing. Not only did wine experience this, but cheese areas did too. So Rockford cheese also had been granted a delimited area of production. Hmm. And they had to make sure it was specified that it was made out of used milk. Huh. Versus other milk. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a man named Capus who seized this idea from the cheese and he wanted to use this for wine. So he added another decree saying that different wines could only use, quote, great varieties hallowed by local, loyal, and established customs. Um, so, as we know today, this is the framework of the French Appellation Controle, or Controlled Appellation. Um, and so this was the beginning of that system that's still in place. Uh, in 1923, we have Baron Leroy in Chateauneuf de Pop, and he produced further refinements, demanding that only suitable land inside of this delimited area should be allowed to use that local name. Mm-hmm. And so, in 1935... The French set up the committee, which is now the Institut National des Appellations d'Origine, to oversee all this. So all the rules uh, were put in place to guarantee authenticity of origin and ingredients. Thanks, cheaters. Yeah. Got to ruin it for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we're going to jump on over to California, where everything's easy to pronounce. (laughs) And nothing is right. Um, so we remember our guy, Augustin Hirafsi, right? He was instrumental with, um, Zinfandel, but here's my spoiler and my leaded, leading question is what main grape do you think of when you think of California? Because it's not Zinfandel. Well, specifically Napa Valley. Specifically for Napa Valley. What would you... Cabernet Sauvignon. There you go. Great job. Um, but this was not always the case. So it's actually believed that the first Cabernet vine was not planted until around 1880 by a guy named Crab, two Bs, Crabba, which is now uh, the source of Mondavi's top cab in Napa. Uh, But during the 1880s, the Bordeaux varieties, so Cab Sav, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, accounted for less than 5% of the total. Hmm. Yeah, things were not always the same. Then... There was phylloxera and prohibition, so Cabernet Sauvignon was not taking off anytime soon. Enter a French man named Georges de la Tour, and he planted an estate called Beaulieu, Beaulieu at the end of the 1800s, and in 1909 began producing wines, in particular Cabernet Sauvignon, which took off. 
So he survived prohibition because he gained the approval of the Archbishop of San Francisco to supply altar wines, and his estate, Bolio, <laughs> went on to provide altar wine until 1978. Wow. So quite a long-lasting relationship. Um, but when prohibition ended in 1933, Beaulieu was one of the only Napa wineries in operational order <clears throat> and with a mature vineyard of Cabernet Sauvignon wine. However, given the times, most of their wines were being made in bad conditions and sold off in bulk. Just one small batch of Cabernet Sauvignon was being kept back each year in small barrels. Now we have this Russian immigrant named Andrei Teleschev that becomes Beaulieu's winemaker. He came by way of France in 1938 and was in the know about French winemaking. So he steps into these badly taken care of vineyards and these worn out wineries with no temperature controls and no idea of how important cleanliness was. And he wanted to concentrate solely on Cabernet Sauvignon and make it world class. His 1936 vintage ended up being named a top Cabernet private reserve. And over the next 35 years, he consistently produced amazing Cabernets that set the standards for Napa vintners to follow. And the cool thing is, he didn't just put it out there. He helped them, right? We don't always have to help people, but he did. And he, in 1947, he established the Napa Valley Wine Technical Group and also acted as a consultant to many wineries and set the stage for hundreds of great Cabernets to come out of Napa Valley. Talk about a team player. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks, tell us, Jeff. Yeah. We also heard that he studied under Louis Pasteur. Mm -hmm. So hence, like, the cleanliness being an issue and the temperature temperature control. Like, he had a lot to share. I wonder if you like drawing and painting. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to hop back to Europe, hopping all around. We're going to go back to Portugal. Um, So we are moving into the 1940s now. Um, Wartime, unfortunately. And so at this time... No one had ever heard of pink wine or rosé from Portugal, right? Like, who's heard of that? But in the depths of wartime, despite Portugal being neutral, they needed a way to make some money off of their wine. The wine business was in trouble. Oporto is the center of the port trade, but war cut off most of the traditional markets like Britain, Northern Europe, so they had to figure out where to send their wine. Port shipments had dropped to their lowest levels ever recorded. So there was a lot of red wine hanging around, about to go to waste, and a lot of grapes with no market. So we have 30 business friends who founded a new company to export wine to one of the few markets they could get to, Portuguese-speaking Brazil. Directly across the Atlantic, away from all the fighting. So they hired a rundown cooperative at the Via Real, north of the Douro River, um, to make their wine. They were initially making red and white wine. So they thought they had it figured out, right? Um, but then we have this man named Fernando Vanzeller Guedes, who knew how popular this, this spritzy, light Vino Verde wines were in Brazil. So they were making the Vino Verde. Brazilians loved it. <laughs> so he thought, surely they can use all these extra red grapes somehow. And so he thought, let's make a slightly fizzy pink wine in the style of Vino Verde. Um Initially, they were unsuccessful in making rosé, um, but then they hired a French winemaker, and he had to show them how to do it. Um, so then they have this fresh, busy, sort of sweet rosé wine. So with the wine in hand, 
They then had to figure out a bottle and a name. They weren't going to go the easy route, right? This is all a marketing ploy, so they got to go full steam ahead with it. So the bottle they chose was based on the traditional slightly flattened Portuguese water flask that soldiers used to carry in World War I. Um, That's just like short, like flask, right? Mm -hmm. The label featured a palace, which happened to be close to the winery and was called Metus. Hmm. Um, So if you've ever heard of Metus. Um, So this guy, Guedes, offered the owners either 50 cents a bottle royalty for the use of their name and picture of the uh, castle on the label or just a single down payment. Well, they chose the single down payment. Mm. It must have been hard up for some cash. Yeah. Um, so following Matusa's launch in 1942, they've sold hundreds of millions of bottles of wow. Matusa. It's still for sale. Right. They could still be getting royalties, um, but they're not. Uh, Fernando Van Zeller Guedes tenacity and innovative marketing um, could be considered the original influencer. Mm. <laughs> Um, he sent two bottles to every Portuguese ambassador around the world, saying one for you and one for your friend to help spread the word about Matus Rosé. Um, so this strategy like helped... Like us on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> Click to subscribe. This strategy helped Mateus to conquer the United States, Asia, Europe, Australia. I mean, he sold millions of bottles worldwide. And Matus remains the number one selling Portuguese wine in the world, selling wow. one bottle every 38 minutes. For their website. Crazy. Yeah. Um, and I'll end it with a quote from Frank Borman, the leader of the team of astronauts who first flew around the moon. He said, my only regret is that when I flew around the moon, I wasn't drinking Matus. Oh, wow. What was he drinking, Tang? I don't know. <laughs> Crazy. All right. So we're going to fly from the moon back to France because we would be remiss if we did not talk a little about France, wine, and of course, of course World War II is a big important event that's happening during this time period um so the year the month is september 1939 right around harvest time we've been here before i don't know why did they pick harvest time yeah (laughs) just like not a great time of year could you wait a couple weeks but this time germany invaded poland and then france and britain declared war on germany things moved fast uh france's poor little army mobilized they disrupted harvest um as young winemakers and agricultural workers left their fields behind to fulfill their military obli- to fulfill their military obligations, edit that out in post production. Um, and then women, whose responsibilities didn't normally include vineyard and cellar work, and also the elderly, they were left in charge to oversee harvest and wine production. So the 1940 vintage in France was far worse as Germany had invaded France in June. It's actually yeah. Um, this is the next year, and occupied the northern half of the country. And they, we all know they put their Vichy, Vichy collaborators in charge of the rest of the country, and things were not super great in France at this time. Um, and over the next few years, from Champagne in the north to Burgundy in the east, and Bordeaux in the southwest, the Germans looted the cellars of precious older bottles and requisitioned much of the current and future production for their own troops and population. Um, so Nazis put these bureaucrats called wine führers into pa- like <coughs> um, positions of power that were <coughs> responsible for supervising and purchasing France's great wines for transporting back to Germany. Hmm. And some of these wine purers were nice and good in their dealings with the French, but others less so. So it really just depended where you were. But in turn, French winemakers 
went to great lengths to hide their best bottles from the Germans and also to sabotage the wine bound for Germany. So we've got wine caves and wine caves are great for wine, but they also became really great places to hide guns and fugitives. Allies also could and would drop supplies into vineyards. And then they were, uh, the resistance was smuggling people in wine barrels, which, you know, there's no easy <coughs> lid removal here. Bar these barrels had to be completely deconstructed. There's also stories of hiding Jewish friends and downed American pilots in rooms in wine caves right next to German soldiers <coughs> who were rooming at these, in these homes. So just crazy and a lot of underground resistance that was coming into play here. Um, also interesting that the U.S. and British intelligence tracked enemy troops via how much wine they were shipping back to Germany and oh, how that was going. Yeah. So these difficulties did not stop at danger and duress. Um, many basic materials that were needed for farming and winemaking became exceedingly difficult to get. So copper sulfate, which was really important in preventing mold and mildew in vineyards, um, became reserved for the German war effort. Glass for bottles was really scarce. And so there are stories of winemakers trying to engineer and manufacture their own copper sulfate uh, while Germans are all around, you know, and even like battles happening and dogfights overhead. So mm -hmm. just not great conditions. Um, and at one point later in the war, large producers were even ordered to distill half their production for use by Germans as solvents and fuel. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. So not a great time, but they kept things going somehow, like miraculously, uh, in a lot of places. Um, now, never thought I'd say this name on a podcast, but Hitler. Oh, <laughs> so God. Hitler didn't actually love wine, but he did love power and prestige. And wine goes hand in hand with those things. So he wanted to establish the greatest wine cellar in history. So in the Eagle's Nest, which was his alpine retreat where he made his plans and schemed with his evildoers... Um, he took plunder from the great French vineyards and stocked a cellar full of half a million bottles of France's finest wine. Wow, that's a lot of bottles. Yeah, a lot. Um, so another note here is that we're all familiar with storming of Normandy and the U.S. and allies are landing in Normandy, Normandy but there was also a parallel invasion that happened at Nice and went up the Rhone Valley. And the French that were part of that invasion made sure to direct all the battles to be on vineyards of inferior quality <laughs> and not on the higher quality vineyards, Aww. which were largely west of the Rhone. Um, so there's a quote that's from one of the soldiers that was helping with this planning. But great news, my, my colonel, we have found the weak point in the German defenses. Everyone is on a vineyard of inferior quality. <laughs> so what luck. <clears throat> um but yeah, at the end of the war, when the Allies finally cracked into Hitler's private stash over at Eagle's Nest, yeah, like I said, they had over he had over half a million bottles of wine from all over France. Um, but thankfully, since he didn't actually love the wine and obviously could never have drank that much, um, most of that wine eventually made its way back to France where it belonged. Oh, good. That's good. And if you're interested in more, there is a great book called Wine and War by Don and Petey Cladstrup, a husband and wife duo that have written a really great book about it. Hmm. Actually, a pretty quick read, too. So, yeah, there's just so much, but that's some of the highlights and um, stories that have stood out to us from this time period. Gosh. But really, so yeah, just wrap it up with some food pairings. All right, since we've already covered Bordeaux, we're going to switch it up and talk <coughs> about what pairs with Roquefort cheese, because um, we talked about that as 
kind of the foundations of actually the AOC in a roundabout way. Um, but that might pair well, even though I'm not sure I've ever actually had it in real life, but maybe it might pair well with a ruby port. Yeah, some sort of smoked pork loin dates, like all these things I'm just picturing. Mm. Yeah, kind of like all nice and heated together mm -hmm. and cooked together. <coughs> we also talked about the importance of Cabernet Sauvignon to Napa Valley. So specifically with a Napa cab, uh, any red meat pretty much you could probably make a case for. Um, but one thing that jumped out to us was a pizza that, they, that we have had at Bricks, which is a like not fancy pizza place. <laughs> Um, but it's gorgonzola cheese with pears, arugula, and walnuts. I think that could pair really nicely. Um, also, a seared tea nut also might hold its own here against like a <coughs> lighter, more acidic Napa cap. And then for a fun one, that matus or that sparkling pink off-dry wine from Portugal, we went breakfast. So picture your lumberjack breakfast spread. You got pancakes. You got bacon. You got Eggs. <laughs> <laughs> you have everything a growing lumberjack body needs. And then the wine, of course. Um, if you want to class it up a little bit, you might just go French toast. Um, but still with the bacon and the eggs. But yeah, just a real hearty breakfast. Mm. And some sparkling sweet. pink yeah. wine. Whatever lumberjack needs to Very get through cool. the day. <laughs> and that brings us to the end. Well, we've progressed a little bit further <laughs> in the 1900s. <laughs> Um, so we will definitely pick up next time with a little bit more in the later half of the century, I guess, yeah. right? Very cool. Well, Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. Thanks. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we're back here with Steve. So, Steve, let's talk a little bit about some of the wines that you're producing from the grapes you're growing here. What do you have? Well, our I call it our premier grape is the Cap Franc. It does beautifully. And uh, we've got some, some vines that are about uh, 15 years old, and we harvest it separately. All of our harvest, you know, of course, it's done by hand, and then we just put it in crates that hold about 30 pounds of grapes. And we don't use the big totes in the field and break the grapes and have juice and everything trying to become wine and vinegar and <laughs> sit in the sun and heat all day. We, the uh, things, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we bring the crates in as fast as we can get them out of the vineyard and, uh, and press them and everything. Everything from the destemmer and the press goes by gravity into the wine. So the first movement's all by gravity. Everything. Uh, and our number two, I guess, would be our uh, Chamberson, as far as the gills and all. And again, we use it as a as a standalone red, and then we use it for our flavored wines, our ports, and then uh, we distill some of it for the Aquadenti for the port for the fortification. Uh, the next largest grouping would be our Chardonnay. And with uh, it, we've been doing just a traditional, uh, you know, all stainless or in uh, uh, Hungarian oak. Uh, a lot of our folks 
don't like the oak, so we try to do a majority of it in oak. Mm. Uh, so it's going to be more like a Sauvignon Blanc Pinot Gris or a, a Chablis. I, I think of more as a Chablis since it's 50% Chardonnay anyway. Uh, then uh, the Saval Blanc. And the Saval is, you know, the big, huge clusters and very thin skin, so you got to watch it for the rot. But we use it if the weather's not cooperating and everything, and and that we can get it around 19% brick. And it looks like we're going to have a lot of rain and weather or, or uh, rot problems or whatever. We'll harvest that, and that's what we do our main sparkling with is the Saval. Because that gives us the ability to save the grapes. Oh, sure. And at 19% uh, sugar, that's almost perfect because that'll give us right at 10, 10.5% 10 uh, uh, alcohol, you know, for the secondary fermentation in the bottle. And that's all in the bottle. We just had some that's been in the bottle over four and a half years. Uh, and of course, we'll blend other wines with that. Uh, Riesling is because of the tight clusters are hit and miss. If, if it has the structure that we like in the intensity, we'll do a dry Riesling, full trocan. <coughs> and if I don't like it, if it doesn't have the profile I like for a dry Riesling, then we will uh, back sweeten it to about uh, somewhere around 10 grams residual sugar per liter. Okay. So it's going to be close to the cabinet on the German QMP standard, you know, more than the state laser or the oscillate. Uh, so that's that's what we, we do with it. Our Chardonnay, uh, we've had problems the last two years with Chardonnay, but uh, if we can get the good Chardonnay, we'll do a Chablis style and the part of it, and then part we'll use an American white oak. Uh, but I love a good crisp you know, Chablis. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm like you. I like the acid and everything in it. And uh, it, the guy from Chablis, I think his name Laurent. I can't remember his last name. He's one of the largest producers of, of Chablis. And he says, a good Chablis, just think of a good champagne with no bubbles. Mm. You should have that, the acidity and right. structure and everything. Makes sense. That green apple, that tartness oh, yeah. and everything with it. So I, I, I like that. And as I said, we have a lot of people who come who, or the ABC scoop, anything but okay. Chardonnay. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand those people. They get on my nerves. They need to relearn the alphabet. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've had a, for a reason. I've had a lot of them. I've taken a port of Chardonnay, and they'll end up buying. I had one lady one day bought six bottles of Chardonnay. Oh wow! And she did not like Chardonnay. Would not drink Chardonnay. But, but a lot of people, a lot of Americans at least, associate Chardonnay with big oaky buttery from California. Mm -hmm. So that's what they associate with, which is not what Chardonnay should be like. No, it's never so, intended. It's it, Well, it's it, it's like one of the rocks at Robert Parker for his hedonistic <laughs> wine. You know, if it's got to be 14%, yes. you, or you yes, only exactly. get a 70 score on it, you know, and if it's 15%, it's 100 no matter what. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the California market and, and everything, it's like the movie Sideways, 40,000 acres of uh, or lower ripped out and put into Pinot mm. because of the movie Sideways. Right. Yeah. So we're we're a, a a country that still hasn't found this way. Doesn't know what it likes or what it wants, and sure. is easily influenced by past. Yeah. Correct. And so we ha we have a lot of that. Uh, our Pinot from the Golden State is not what a Pinot's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. No. And uh, <laughs> it, it, they have all kind of issues. It has everything that I hate that. about Pinot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And. Uh, <laughs> 
Pinot was never meant to be a Cabernet Sauvignon replacement. Right? Correct. Yeah, this, Some this folks big try. jammy fruit bomb. It's not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a lean, austere. Yeah. You drink it within five years, not supposed to age, not supposed to have a lot of deep color because mm-hmm. the skin doesn't have it. Uh, so anyway, those are, those are the wines. So we try to let them speak for themselves. And we started out with a vertical water press, you know, the 450-liter press. And we press it about 150 gallons per ton on our, our fruit. <coughs> uh, two years ago, we bought a German press, you know, a horizontal press. Love it. I, I should have invested the money back in 2010 hmm. and bought a press like that back then. It would have already paid for itself in, in the fruit. And it gives us the ability now, like the, our dry rosé, we just destem it and drop it direct in, the stem direct into the press. And uh, so then we, we press it off the, off the skins right then. Uh, we didn't have that capability with the other press. Now I can do a whole cluster. And this year, looking at our Riesling, our Riesling yield's not going to be that good. Got some problems with it from black rot and things. So right now, from if we harvested tomorrow, the Riesling's going to go in whole cluster. I will not destem or crush it. It's going to go in in the press whole cluster. So I'm, we're, we've evolved to that point, uh, which we can uh, we can do that, and uh, we'll see. I would love to be able to get a good a good fruit and do a, a dry Riesling. I haven't had one in about four years. Mm. I'd love to be able to produce a good dry Riesling, and it would be that's that's my goal. Uh, also, with the new press, it gives us the capability of running a, a free run fraction and a press fraction. Mm. So we did that last year with our uh, with our. Um, Cab Franc and the Chamberson. And it's amazing at the difference between the two. And our old vine, uh, Cab Franc, we just, it's all one factor. It's all press and free run. It's on it. And to go down the cellar and to taste from the, the tanks from the, the free run or a, a blend of free run and press, and then just the, the old. Uh, the structure and intensity and everything is, is very interesting in the difference. Uh, so that that will give us a little bit more leeway and fine-tuning the expression of, of what's in the bottle. Very cool. So that, that has been a, a, a good help. So I would recommend anybody out there, if they've got six, seven acres, go find a used, you know, horizontal press if you can. That gives you that capability. Uh, when we started the vineyard, we wanted to limit the budget and everything, all the expense put in, because we had, we had no clue. Right. We didn't know if the first vine would even grow, you know, and then they're, they're growing, and you don't know, well, we're going to be able to harvest anything and help, you know, and, and actually make some wine or what. So you want to be careful about the monies that you ex- expend, you know, in doing that. So, uh, so we tried to do it as economically as we could on the scale that we, we could do it. And, and you learn. Yeah, of course. And you learn. So that would be my recommendation if somebody somebody starting out, go borrow a field or whatever to find you something <laughs> to, uh, and see how they go. You know? Right tools make a difference. Yeah, because it it, it makes a, a difference in, in subtle. It's like pulling the leaves. you got to get those leaves, especially on the red. 
on the flight. We get too many clouds. We got too much fog. We don't get enough direct ultraviolet radiation, light. I know that UV rays going to come through the clouds anyway. But you still need that sun exposure and everything to get the, the fruit quality where you need it. And that's a heck of a, as much growth as you have here, it's a heck of a challenge to do that, keep it under control. Uh, and in the cellar, we, we, all of our whites, we, we keep them temperature controlled, try to keep it at 56 degrees. Mm -hmm. We, we, we want as much flavor out of that wine as we can get. We don't want it cooked off with a high temperature, fast fermentation. We want to take the time and, and let it build and slow and, you know, and try to save as many of those uh, esters as we can. We don't want to cook them up. No, sure. And when we were starting thinking about making wine, I remember a commercial for Welch's Grape Jelly back in the late 60s, early 70s. They had the vacuum hoods, and they showed that one of their commercials where they're, where they're cooking the grape juice under a hood, and the vacuum's pulling it off and, and returning it back in so they're not wasting any of those flavors. And say, say our, our jelly is more flavorful because this, this is what we're doing. We're recuperating these flavors. We're not cooking them off. And so that always stuck with me. So that's what we try to do. And our, our reds, we try to keep them in the, in the low to mid-60s while we're fermenting them. And then six or eight punch downs a day, you know, while, yep. they're, while they're fermenting to try to keep the cap in. Uh, and the last, since 2016, we've not used any sulfide in our, our juice at all. We'll use sulfite when we get as we once we start racking it after the wine's made, but but to kill off everything that's on the grape and everything, no, we we may be in error of doing that. Mm -hmm. But we'll start. We'll just as soon as we get the juice in the tank, we'll pull a sample, analyze it for what we need, and then we'll go ahead and build the yeast and put in and start start fermenting right then. We don't wait to chill it down. We don't wait. Know, a couple of days for the sulfur to kill what yeast is on it. So we'll take some of the native yeast because that that's the terroir. That's the place. Sure. That's part of nature. That's part of the net uh, here. So so far we've been pretty lucky, I guess. But uh, it's I'll stick with it. So, so describe the experience for folks when they come out to visit. What's it like to come visit here, well, in your mind? Well, you come here, we're not into music or noise or foods or party. We do wine and wine and wine. And if you come here for a visit, you can walk the grounds. You're looking at three states. You can go wander through the vineyard, run your dog, let your dog run loose, whatever you want to do. And we will spend as little or as much time with you talking about wine, what we do, how we do it, as, as you want. And we'll get you out as fast as you want, or you can spend all day if you want. And we'll, we'll share as much information with you as we can. We're very, uh, we try to be very user-friendly. We try to give you a very good uh, uh, educational tasting as to why, what, why, how, where the wine came from, what's in that glass. And uh, 
why it is different than what you'd buy in the store. Uh, we, we try to do that. Hopefully that is what you're going to leave with. You're going to leave with an experience of being relatively quiet, simple, you know, a good, a good, a good experience, a good view of the country, and some peace and quiet and being out in the country. What we, we hope we'll, uh, you'll leave with. Uh, we'll have people come in and say, okay, choose, choose five wines. We've got 13 wines today, choose five of them. Oh, I never drink this or I never drink that. I don't do this, that. Well, 90% of the time, I'll never pour you what you check on your list, <laughs> especially the first couple of wines. And especially if you tell me, oh, I don't drink dry wines. I, I don't like dry wines. I guarantee you 100% of the time, I'm going to pour you a dry wine. Yeah, try something. It won't be a red, but it'll be it'll be uh, the champagne or it'll be the, the Chardonnay right at the moment because uh, I pour you a dry wine. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good for people to, to, to taste something that they they wouldn't necessarily pick themselves, and that's a way for them to learn. And if you're wanting it to be an educational experience, which is what it sounds like that's what you want, then that's a great way to do it. That's what it is. And about 95, I think about 95% of the people come to the door have a misconception of dry. Yes. They, they, everybody thinks dry is the heavy tannin red that yeah. twists and dries your mouth out and turns it inside out and everything. It has nothing to do with dry. Correct. And about 90, 95% of people think that's a dry wine. So when you pour them a, a, some of the champagne or you pour them the Chardonnay, let you drink, you know, they say, oh, I like that. That's dry. Yeah. Oh, it can't be a dry wine. I don't like it. That's a dry wine. Trust me. It's as dry as a wine can be. Right. You know, uh, the only residual sugar is the nanohexopentose that cannot be converted to alcohol. That's the only residual sugar that's in there. The, that 0.2.3 you know grams per liter that can't be converted to alcohol. So, uh, so that's what we do, and we not to trick people, but we will we will take the extra time and everything, and so you get four wines, you might end up eight or nine wines by the time it's over. Oh, sure. yeah. Not the five we tell you. You know we're not rigid. We're extremely flexible, and we'll go back and forth. And so hopefully, if you come here with an open mind, you will be entertained and enlightened and hopefully you'll have a better appreciation of what goes in that glass than you did before you walked in the door. And if so, then it's all worthwhile. If not, then I'm sorry we may have wasted your time. You know. But And you open for the season so you're not open all year, you open for the season in late in, in April sometime, right? Yeah, sometime after depends on the weekends, but you after Easter and then we'll close after the first weekend of December. Uh, we're open Fridays and Saturdays from noon to six. Uh, we ha we do some appointments. We try not to do those. <coughs> we're out here in the end of the world, and uh, not a lot of people during the week, and we don't have the labor, so we're working our tails in the vineyard or somewhere else on the farm during the week. And we take the Friday and Saturday off to entertain and share, share the product. Uh, but in wintertime, it's too cold. Right. And we don't have that many people. Most of our, you, you go on the back, most everybody out there is from Florida. We got we got three ladies over here. I know one or two of us from Florida. And uh, so that's the, the people we get that come, come up for the season, rent a cabin for the weekends or whatever. They're up in the winter on the weekends, but if it's if it's 30 degrees and windy and raining and spitting snow and you're open, you'll have two or three brave souls come out. 
you want these five wines, you want these five. I've opened <laughs> ten bottles. You buy the sympathy bottle and you leave. Yeah. Now what I do, and nobody else shows up the rest of the day because the weather's so bad. Now what I do? Mm-hmm. Right. Now if we were into uh, having bands and food and the restaurant and everything else, now we could open six, seven days a week, you know. But we're we do wine and wine, and that's it. And so that's that's what we stick to, and and that's. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. So tell folks how to find you then. So we've, we've, we've said when, when they can come, but, but where? Where are you? We're, we're southwestern North Carolina. Uh, you can go on the website at notlywine.com or you can go on Facebook at Notley River Valley Vineyards. I know it's too long, but that's where the Germans went there. <laughs> um, and... Uh, there can find us, and uh, we're evenly spaced between Blue Ridge, Blairsville, and Murphy, which are the biggest towns around here. We're 100 miles from downtown Atlanta. We're 60 from Chattanooga. We're 65 from Knoxville. We're 132 from Ashland, and we're 5,000 miles from Raleigh, <laughs> uh, the other side of the planet. But uh, we're here, and... We'll entertain people. We get calls from people. Oh, I'd like to come by and buy a bottle. If you're during the week, if you want to come buy a bottle and we're around here, we'll sell you a bottle. If it's a pretty day like this afternoon and it's Wednesday afternoon and you call, hey, I'd like to come and buy a bottle of wine and sit and drink it. Uh, come on, we're here working and we'll sell you a bottle and set your glasses down. We might even have a sip with you if we can and talk with you. But, but we try to accommodate the public as much as we can. Uh, but we do have... We have those restrictions. It's not worth it trying to be open. And the question we get is, well, what are you going to do when you're closed? All those months you're closed. Guess what? We're working. (laughs) We're We're not in Disney. We're working. It doesn't stop. It's (laughs) still growing. (laughs) Not taking a five-month vacation. (laughs) Yeah, we're not not doing that. No. And uh, so that's where we are. And we're very southwestern North Carolina. We're off Spur 60. I guess you're the... Probably, are you the furthest west vineyard and winery? The, if you're heading east, we're the first winery and vineyard you come to in North Carolina. If you're heading west, we're the last one. You don't get any farther west than we are. With the, and there's no vineyards out there. One of these days, we're going to do 64. We're going to come. We're going to either start at Sanctuary or come this way and try to do do the do the, the Murphy to Manio, if you will, as well, close as you could do it from. From that, well, so. you can do it in in 2003. My brother, my son, and a friend and I were out uh, at Kitty Hawk for the hundredth anniversary celebration of flight. Hmm. We were parked at the entrance to the beach there on one of the little beach access parking sure. lots, and so we left at 3:15 in the afternoon, and we drove back to here. Oh wow! So there's four of us driving, two stops. And uh, we got in at three o'clock in the morning, so Seems it's a good. Right. It can be done in the days. You can do it. In, <laughs> no you, thanks. You can do it, and we only is only as the road goes only fifteen more miles than we've been in Tennessee. Right, right, right. And the way the road goes, as you're looking now, as a, as a crow flies, we're only five miles from the Tennessee border, but the road takes fifteen miles around the curve, you know, in the hills. But uh, well, we encourage everyone to come out. Make that drive out to southwestern North Carolina, experience uh, these locally grown, locally made, minimal intervention wines, and see Steve and Karen and, and visit. Anything else you want folks to know? 
No, we just appreciate it. Buy North Carolina wines, and uh, and hopefully we'll continually improve. Hopefully we'll continue to learn what will grow, how to grow it, and, and how to make wine out of it. But I think we have the potential of, of growing and making as good a wine as you'll find on this planet. And I've, like I said, I've spent 38 and a half years. I've been pretty much every winery in region you can go in the world and visited and had wines from them. And, and so I, we have the capability, but it's, it might be once every 10 years. If you talk to the folks in Oslace area of France, they'll say, we, we depend on having one good vineyard every three or four years. And here, if, if we get a, a real good vintage ever every five or six years, I think we're doing good. Uh, and the others, it's, it's a challenge. This year is, I have no idea what the wine this year is going to be like because we've got clusters that are as, as purple as can be, and right next to them there's a green cluster in our Chamberson and the Cap Franc. You go down to the Chardonnay and the Saval, and you've got some that are turning yellow and nice, and you've got some that are still green and hard. Some are starting to get soft. It's going to be very uneven fruit this year, and I, it is going to be a tremendous challenge this year. It's, it's been a challenge all year. It's going to be a challenge all the way until it's in the bottle. And they pour it down the drain. <laughs> Steve, thank you. I've done it before. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Steve. We definitely encourage everyone to plan a visit to Murphy and check out Notley River Valley. It's definitely worth the trip. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.